Good morning. My name is Rob and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Wayfair fourth quarter 2023 earnings release and conference call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, again, press the star one. Thank you. James Lamb, Head of Investor Relations and Treasury, you may begin your conference. Good morning, and thank you for joining us. Today, we will review our fourth quarter 2023 results. With me are Neeraj Shah, co-founder, chief executive officer, and co-chairman, Steve Conine, co-founder and co-chairman, and Kate Gulliver, chief financial officer and chief administrative officer. We will all be available for Q&A following today's prepared remarks. I would like to remind you that our call today will consist of forward-looking statements, including, but not limited to, those regarding our future prospects, business strategies, industry trends, and our financial performance, including guidance for the first quarter of 2024. All forward-looking statements made on today's call are based on information available to us as of today's date. We cannot guarantee that any forward-looking statements will be accurate, although we believe that we have been reasonable in our expectations and assumptions. Our 10K for 2023 and our subsequent SEC filings identify certain factors that could cause the company's actual results to differ materially from those projected in any forward-looking statements made today. Except as required by law, we undertake no obligation to publicly update or revise any of these statements, whether as a result of any new information, future events, or otherwise. Also, please note that during this call, we will discuss certain non-GAAP financial measures as we review the company's performance, including adjusted EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA margin, and free cash flow. These non-GAAP financial measures should not be considered replacements for and should be read together with GAAP results. Please refer to the Investor Relations section of our website to obtain a copy of our earnings release and investor presentation, which contain descriptions of our non-GAAP financial measures and reconciliations of any non-GAAP measures to the nearest comparable GAAP measures. This call is being recorded and a webcast will be available for replay on our IR website. I would now like to turn the call over to Neeraj. Thanks, James. And good morning, everyone. We're excited to be with you today to discuss our fourth quarter results and recap 2023. Q4 was one more definitive step on our profitability journey as we generated a 3% adjusted EBITDA margin, even in a difficult macro environment. This was our third consecutive quarter of positive adjusted EBITDA and free cash flow and a reflection of the immense progress we achieved across the entire year. In fact, on a revenue base that largely mirrored 2022, our free cash flow in 2023 improved by over $1 billion. As we exited 2022, we anchored ourselves around three core initiatives, nailing the basics, driving customer and supplier loyalty, and cost efficiency. 
Over the course of 2023, we systematically executed on all three fronts. Our efforts to nail the basics and drive customer and supplier loyalty led to a large improvement in our core recipe across availability, speed, and price competitiveness. The improvements across our offering were directly responsible for the step-up we saw in loyalty, which manifested in our robust share expansion over the last year, and by the fourth quarter, a return to year-over-year growth in our active customer count. That engagement was driven in part by our progress on the third initiative, a meaningful evolution in our cost structure, with savings spanning labor, operations, and every other line of our P&L, which allowed us to reinvest in our customer experience. We've consistently shared that those same core initiatives would carry forward into 2024, and you've already seen the results of that play out. If you haven't had the chance, I'd encourage you to take a look at our shareholder letter that was published alongside our earnings results earlier this morning. Last year, we saw our team unlock large productivity gains as focused execution against our top ideas met reduced friction and less internal bureaucracy. As we looked at the evolution and composition of our teams throughout 2023, it became increasingly clear to us that there was more that could be done to increase productivity. We realized that many of our teams were still over-indexed to middle and upper-level managers in proportion to the more execution-focused team members that are the foundation of each group. Late last year, we started an exercise involving a number of our senior leaders to look at each team across the organization and answer some simple questions. How would we maximize the efficiency of this team? How many people would be on it? What would the appropriate leveling look like? Would we actually prioritize all the activities the team does? And then we answered as if we were starting from a blank slate. We took this work and used it in conjunction with the effort we started in the summer of 2022 to return to our lean and fit self by reorganizing around an ideal structure. While this is not the work anyone enjoys, being lean is a key part of our culture and partly why we think we've out-executed others over the last 20 years. The key here is that we're comfortable being frugal around headcount. We're excited to welcome a group of new college graduates this summer, and we'll allocate those hires to the key teams and efforts that will provide the biggest gains, all the while growing the foundational base of talent in the company who can rise through the ranks in the years to come. This enables us to move forward against an ambitious set of growth initiatives, while at the same time, see our team thrive in a workplace where they have fewer obstacles, fewer meetings, and fewer boxes to tick off to bring these initiatives to fruition. Many of you asked if the decision was made in reaction to what we're seeing from the macro, and the answer is no. Our intent was to address the structure of our org in a way that will unlock productivity gains, not just for one or two quarters, but for years to come. However, as we shared in our press release from last month, our category does remain challenged with softness persisting through the start of the year. I was recently at the furniture market in Las Vegas and had the opportunity to speak with many of our suppliers. We heard that January was weak, though a short bout of extreme weather was clearly one factor. While uncertainty remains around the timing of a recovery, we are well positioned to see meaningful upside as the spending climate around the home and housing rebounds. And we continue to see our own growth well outpacing the category. It's important to call out that our success is not exclusively against smaller home-focused competitors. We're also seeing share gains against some of the biggest retailers in the country. I mentioned earlier that we've been able to win through execution gains driven by a more nimble, focused team, and we've been encouraged to see that play out across the organization. One area that I'd like to highlight today is our UK business, where we've seen a noteworthy inflection in share over the past year. The UK is a key market for us with an addressable market estimated to be in the $60 billion range. While the competitive ecosystem has strong similarity to the US, 
with a mix of a few multinationals, a number of large multi-category retailers, several homeware specialists, and a long tail of smaller competitors in various niches within the category, the actual list of names looks almost entirely different. The market fragmentation works to our advantage as we are one of the few scaled players that focuses exclusively on the home. Over the past year, we've driven healthy market share growth on the back of considerable availability improvements, double-digit percentage growth in small parcel speed badging, and meaningfully more competitive prices. This was fueled by our operational efficiency initiatives that drove considerable savings dollars, some of which we were able to pass back to our customers. Our aided awareness in the UK is nearly as high as the US, and we've seen an encouraging increase in customer satisfaction scores since the same time last year. Just as we do in Canada and Germany, we take a country-specific approach to servicing customers in the United Kingdom. Our creative is specifically built to emphasize UK tone of voice, along with using UK homes in our television ads, which you can view on our UK-specific social channels. Leveraging our strength in logistics and our six UK Wayfair delivery terminals, we bring our UK customers a best-in-class fulfillment experience with services like scheduled delivery and white glove upgrades, while also opening up a wider selection from suppliers based in continental Europe. We find that UK competitors frequently have much lower levels of selection, which makes our endless aisle even more compelling and positions Wayfair as an unparalleled option in the market. Now, before I hand it over to Kate, I want to take a few minutes to address three of the topics around which we've heard the most interest. Let me start first with the Red Sea and ocean cargo situation, which we've gotten many questions about over the past couple of months. Like many others, we've seen some supply chain disruption, especially for our product being shipped to Europe through the Suez Canal. We've seen our carriers implement interim solutions, including routing shipments around the southern tip of Africa. It's important to keep in mind the minor scope of supply chain disruption this poses in contrast to the type of disruption we faced back in 2021. These new routes increase shipping time on a much more manageable basis than we faced in 2021, and availability across our catalog has seen no meaningful negative impact. Container prices have risen, but nowhere near the order of magnitude the industry faced a few years ago when rates reached $20,000 per container during the COVID crisis. So the net is that while rates have risen, it is something we're very capable of managing without issue, and we're already solving for that today. The second topic we've received questions on has been average order values. We know this has been tracked quite closely in recent quarters as the inflationary pressures for many of those same supply chain challenges have now finally worked their way out of the inventory picture. Our AOV peaked in the second quarter of 2022, and by the end of that year, we began to see prices decline. We lapped those initial price drops this Q4 and saw that normalization process happen a bit more rapidly than we expected, due in part to mix shift. We still anticipate seeing some modest negative year-over-year comparisons during the front half of this year as we approach a fully normalized pricing state mid-year. The third topic we know investors are acutely focused on is the volatile macroeconomic backdrop as the category quickly approaches a new record for a peak-to-trough correction. As we said consistently, our focus is squarely on controlling the controllables. You've seen the enormous progress we've made on our cost structure in the last 18 months. As part of our press release from January, we called out that we would expect to generate over $600 million of adjusted EBITDA this year on a hypothetical flat revenue scenario, which would translate to a margin north of 5%, putting us in a position to check the box on step two of our profitability ramp. 
And that only captures part of the substantial leverage we've unlocked in our model, with our true earnings profile further augmented by the reductions we've brought to bear on equity-based compensation and capital expenditures. With all the work we've done to optimize our fixed cost base, we'll see even further benefits to the bottom line when the category recovers, as the high margin on flow-through of each incremental dollar of revenue will drive up the margin rate quickly. It's important to reiterate that our work on cost savings hasn't deterred our focus on delivering a best-in-class shopping experience. For example, we recently launched free white glove delivery on certain large parcel items, which we combined with deluxing, where our delivery agents unbox an item, inspect it for any flaws before the final delivery, and greatly enhance the customer experience to seamlessly set the item up in the customer's home and make sure it's immediately ready for use. This is only possible to provide nationally with the scale and focus that Wayfair brings to the category. And it's one of the many factors behind a return to positive active customer year-over-year growth this quarter. We're eagerly looking forward to demonstrating the growth potential of our business as the category recovers. And I want to end by calling out some of the things I'm most excited for in 2024. The first is the launch of our Wayfair branded store this May. We're delighted to showcase the breadth and depth of our catalog in an entirely new way and can't wait for you to see it. The second is the launch of our new brand campaign, which will roll out in mid-March. We're bringing a vibrant refresh to the Wayfair brand with new merchandising, new marketing, and new ways to connect with our shoppers. The third is our plan to launch a tender neutral loyalty program this fall, a new opportunity to create a differentiated shopping experience for our customers to keep them coming back time and time again. We have a lot of exciting things underway to help us keep driving compounding gains. With that, let me turn it over to Kate to walk you through our financials. Thanks, Neeraj, and good morning, everyone. Let's dive into our fourth quarter results, beginning with revenue. Net revenue for the quarter came in at $3.1 billion, up 0.4% from the same period last year. Orders grew by 2.7% year-over-year, and we saw active customer growth return positive, up 1.4% year-over-year in the period. As Neeraj discussed earlier, average order values came in higher than expected, down only 2.5% against the fourth quarter of last year, as we saw a boost from our performance in higher ticket classes during the holiday shopping season. I want to touch on the top line and macro context a bit before going further in the P&L. As Neeraj shared in his remarks, our category broadly remains under pressure. Within this context, we are very encouraged by our ongoing share gains and our continued ability to outpace the category. We've started this year with the best share figures we've seen across all the data we have in our credit card panel back to 2018. As we've shared previously, the share capture can be attributed to the return and strength of our core recipe in Q4 of 22 as we improved availability, speed, and price driving a best-in-class customer experience. All, of course, in the context of also aggressively managing our cost structure and driving profitability and free cash flow. I'll now move further down the P&L. As I do, please note that the remaining financials include depreciation and amortization, but exclude equity-based compensation, related taxes, and other adjustments. I will use the same basis when discussing our outlook as well. Gross profit came in at 30.4% of net revenue, as we saw the typical effects of holiday seasonality play out in tandem with our own proactive reinvestment of some operational savings that we had achieved earlier in the year. 
Customer service and merchant fees were 4.2% of net revenue, and advertising was 12.2% of net revenue. Once again, there is a holiday effect here, which drove the sequential step up in advertising dollars spent. Finally, selling, operations, technology, general and administrative costs, or SOTG&A, came in at $447 million for the fourth quarter. That was the impact of our work in 2022 and 2023 on driving fixed cost efficiency. We took SOTG&A down by over 13% in the full year 23 versus 2022, and that doesn't even capture the progress we made on reducing capital expenditures and incremental dilution from equity-based compensation. Altogether, we had a third consecutive quarter of positive adjusted EBITDA at $92 million for the period, or a 3% margin on net revenue. Our U.S. segment drove $131 million of adjusted EBITDA at a 4.8% margin on net revenue, while our international segment adjusted EBITDA loss of $39 million was less than half the loss we had in the same quarter a year ago. We ended the year with $1.4 billion of cash and equivalents and $1.9 billion of total liquidity when adding the capacity from our undrawn revolving credit facility. Net cash from operations was $158 million which was offset by $96 million of capital expenditures for free cash flow of $62 million for the fourth quarter and our third quarter in a row of positive free cash flow. Now let's turn to guidance for the first quarter. Beginning with the top line, quarter to date, we are trending down in the mid-single digits year over year, and we would expect the full quarter to end in a similar place. We are continuing to win share among consumers, but see the weight of a category correction now rivaling the great financial crisis, dragging on top-line growth. To put this in perspective, our read of various data sources shows the category declining year-over-year year now for nine consecutive quarters, with the last six quarters exhibiting double-digit contraction. Although the timing is inherently uncertain, when macro pressures on our category and interest rates eventually ease, we are set up to benefit meaningfully on revenue growth and profitability flow through. Moving on to gross margins, we would continue to guide you to the 30 to 31% range as the appropriate place to model. As we've said for over a year now, we intend to be very tactical in our decisions around investing some of our gross margin back into the customer experience. In light of the volatile start to the year for the category, we anticipate that we will continue to prioritize those investments. Customer service and merchant fees should be between 4 and 4.5% 4 .5 of net revenue, reflecting some of the cost takeout from the workforce realignment plan we enacted last month. We expect this to trend closer to the 4% mark as we run rate the full savings by Q2. Advertising should stay in an 115 to 12.5% range, and SOTG&A should be in a range of 410 to $420 million. Following this guidance through, we would expect adjusted EBITDA margins in the positive low single-digit range for Q1, which we would expect to be a low point both on a dollars and margin basis for the full year. While we don't offer full-year guidance, I want to refer back to remarks we made on our third quarter call. It is critically important for us to deliver on our commitment of substantial adjusted EBITDA growth in 2024. We have multiple levers at our disposal to drive adjusted EBITDA independent of the top line, even if the macro environment remains challenged across 2024. 
we have line of sight to full year 2024 adjusted EBITDA growth north of 50% year over year. As you are modeling, it's worth bearing in mind that the first quarter is typically the period where we see an initial outflow of cash during the year, given our negative cash conversion cycle, which reverses as revenue builds in the spring. Now let me touch on a few housekeeping items. You should expect equity-based compensation and related taxes of roughly $110 to $130 million, reflecting the healthy progress we made on cost takeouts. Depreciation and amortization of approximately $103 to $108 million. Net interest expense of approximately $5 million. Weighted average shares outstanding of approximately $120 million and CapEx in an $80 to $90 million range. As I wrap up, I want to spend a moment addressing the topic of capital structure planning as we look out at the maturities coming due over the next couple of years. The meaningful improvement in our financial profile over 2023, in combination with the cost action we took last month, has given us broad optionality in managing the convertible notes that come due in the fall of this year and 2025. Looking out at the macro and our own cash flow profile, we are prioritizing prudency. Our goal, as always, is to maximize value to Wayfair shareholders, and we are extensively evaluating the best timing and options to achieve this. Due to the hard work of the last year, we believe we've expanded our option set. For example, the improvements in our pro forma financial profile enable us to pay down the notes in cash and remain opportunistic around any potential refinancing activity. Before moving into Q&A, I would like to return to what Neeraj touched on earlier. 2023 truly was a year of meaningful progress for Wayfair. Our market share gains and a return to active customer growth clearly show that we are the premier shopping destination for the home. This foundation positions us incredibly well to reaccelerate toward the growth algorithm we laid out at Investor Day once the category stabilizes. As importantly, we have made considerable improvements up and down the cost structure with a clearly demonstrated discipline that carries forward to 2024 and beyond. The combination of these elements, along with all of the exciting innovation we have in store, makes me more confident than ever about the bright future ahead for Wayfair. Thank you. And now, Neeraj, Steve, and I will be happy to take your questions. At this time, I would like to remind everyone, in order to ask a question, press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. We ask that you please limit yourself to one question and one follow-up. Your first question comes from a line of Simeon Gutman from Morgan Stanley. Your line is open. Hey, good morning, everyone. I wanted to ask first about the spread of your share gains vis-a-vis -vis the industry. If you can contextualize it all where, I don't know, e-com or total industries trending, and then what gives you confidence that spread holds throughout the year or could even expand? Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks, uh, Simeon. This is an urge. Um, <clears throat> sure, let me uh, answer that. So first on market share, obviously there's a lot of ways to calculate market share. I'd say um, our main two ways we do that are we have a credit card uh, data set we get, which has a, you know, close to 100 competitors on it, and that gives us really good granular data at the competitor level and in total. The second is we talk to our suppliers regularly, and they share how we're doing, and they, they, they'll share details relative to specific competitors. And while that's less of a quantitative read, that's a pretty dense, detailed read, and so we use those two. 
But if you zoom out, the easiest one is just to look at our revenue, right? And if you zoom way out, you see our revenue was up, uh, you know, just under half a percent in the quarter year over year. I think if you look at um, competitors, you know, um, depending on the category you pick, you're going to see numbers negative 10, negative 15. You know, you're going to basically see numbers uh, e even maybe higher than that. Some are going to be negative 20. Um, but that, that's where the category was year over year. So obviously that delta is the share that we took because obviously the revenue, you know, is customers voting with their dollars. That's the market share. So we're, you know, the way to think about it is for five quarters now, since the fourth quarter of 22, we've been taking away taking share. And that was basically on the back of availability and price started to recover post-COVID in the summer of 22. By the fourth quarter of 22, we had that recipe back intact. So we very quickly started picking up the share, the low-hanging fruit of the share. But then even though that got hard, um, after that, as we hit all-time highs, we've continued to take share. And so our all-time high, we keep hitting all-time highs in market share as the quarters go by. And so what we would expect to happen is that you're going to see the category for a period of time, you know, in the near term be challenged. So, you know, the year-over-year -year numbers for the total category will be, um, you know, not great. And you're going to see us outpacing them significantly, uh, thereby picking up incremental share continuing to hit all-time highs. So I, I don't know if that helps um, with the context of what we expect, but that, you know, that, that's sort of um, the way uh, we see it. And then I, the only other comment I would make is obviously – we would expect the category to subsequently recover. You know, it's a cyclical category. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. I was reading uh, a note someone put out about the Home Depot call the other day. Um, you know, and Home Depot is obviously a well-run company, but obviously is in the home category as well. And, they, they you know, they're, they're talking about how certain segments are, you know, challenged right now or what have you. But the, the note talked about is how from a cost and a, a revenue uh, potential standpoint, they're really poised for huge gains once the category recovers. And what I would point out is, like, that's also how we feel uh, we are. So, in other words, we're taking share while it's really hard to take share as the market's, uh, you know, it's shrinking. It's a challenging time to take share. Obviously, competitors don't want to give up share. Um, but we've taken up $2 billion in cost, you know, close to it. We, um, we've, we've gotten ourselves where the unit economics are very strong. We've got customers um, really responding to what we're doing. You see that in the market share. You also see on the active customer count, which is ticked up. And so as, as uh, the market turns and demand comes back, I think you're going to see um, quite a nice acceleration in revenue and profits as well. So while the market's tough, you're going to see us continue to tick away just with the execution we're doing, and then you're only going to see that get a lot better as the market recovers. And, and to that point, and this will be the follow-up, as um, sales recover, what what is the right way to think about incrementals for every point above zero? And then alternatively, if it stays negative for the medium term, is there a way to think about decrementals? Yeah, sure. So I think the way to think about it, so actually one thing I'll just put a plug in for is um, we um, today, along with obviously the earnings call materials, one of the things we released on the investor website is our annual shareholder letter. And, you know, as the title says annual, we only do that obviously once a year. So it's an opportunity to look out to the future and for us to share our thinking on a bunch of topics. And I really encourage everyone on the call to just take a few minutes to download that and, and read it. Um, it's right on the IR website. Um, because there we can really share some detailed thinking about what we're focused on, which is not so much near-term near focused as uh, the call tends to be. But one of the things I do mention is um, how we think about how we're poised for future earnings. And we t I talk about how the next billion dollars of revenue would flow through in the mid to high teens um, um, on EBITDA. And, it, you know, that's basically the, the concept. Uh, you know, we have fixed costs. 
um, in the business, and we get to leverage those as we grow. So there, there's, um, you know, that's hopefully your, your point on kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know how, what's the incremental potential look like. Yeah, and hey, Samina, it's Kate. Good morning. I, I guess what I would add to that, too, you know, you asked sort of going the other way. And in the prepared remarks, I referenced the comment that we made on the third quarter call around substantial EBITDA growth. And I said, you know, somewhat irrespective of the top line, we expect to see 50% EBITDA growth as really a floor. So even with, you know, uh, ongoing challenging macro or in your scenario, um, you know, a you know, potential contraction ongoing, we would still expect pretty significant EBITDA growth in 2024 due to the cost actions that we've already taken. Thank you both. Your next question comes from the line of Alexandra Steger from Goldman Sachs. Your line is open. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so you've been very clear that reducing headcounts over the past few months has been a driver of efficiency and productivity within the organization. Where are we in that journey? Do you think there's more room for efficiencies? And when do you think it's actually the right time to start rehiring grow headcount again? And then my second question um, for Kate, could you just elaborate a little bit more on your Q1 revenue guide in terms of drivers behind the outlook and the factors that are inside versus outside your control? Thank you. Uh, um, it, why don't I um, answer the first part, and then I then turn it over to Kate um, for uh, your second um, your second part there. Um, on, on the kind of productivity, efficiency gains, headcount side, the way I think the way to think about it is we um, we obviously did reduce headcount over the last 18 months, but this last time what we did is we did it with first and foremost an eye to what we thought a very efficient organizational model would be. Um, versus a cost savings target or something like that is the initial going in uh, goal. And so we think we've set up what will be a very efficient organization. There is some headcount we will add to that, but it's modest in the scheme of the headcount we have. And what it really does, it lets us really reformulate teams, including a lot of the more junior members of those teams, which during the COVID period we hadn't hired. And so we didn't have as many of those folks on the team as would be make sense from a ratio standpoint. And so with the college hires will join, you know, we'll have them there. But that's from a from like an incremental headcount um, cost standpoint. You know, that that's not a that's not a big number. And what we think is that there's a lot of productivity gains to come. And that comes from a few different things. One, it comes from, you know, with the organizational model we set up, we think it enables folks to move faster and get more done. We're already seeing early signs of that. Um, second, we think then, you know, a lot of people are in new roles. So then as they get settled in, as they're executing, we think there's compounding uh, gains uh, there. And then the last piece is we've spent a lot of the last um, couple of years on a technology transformation and replatforming our core technology stack. And as we're nearing um, the uh, late, later stages of that, we get a lot of gains from when we build feature function on a new, the new technology. It's much faster to build and much more flexible. And those gains will come in the future, but we're, we're nearing that point. So we're, we're quite, um, we feel quite good about how productivity will continue to compound as we go forward. Uh, yeah, so Alexander, on your revenue question, um, a few thoughts there. Obviously, you know, the macro context is the macro context. We don't drive that. But we have been focused for the past six quarters on controlling what we can control. And as it pertains to revenue, a key piece of that is the recipe. So price, availability, and speed. You heard your speak to that. That's been driving our share gains. And we think we've done a really great job driving gains in what has been a challenging market. You know, as it particularly pertains to this quarter, we're obviously uh, sitting on this call, you know, deep into the quarter at this point. And so I just point you to 
to that as you think about, you know, our quarter to date number and referencing that is generally what to expect for the quarter. Great, thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Brian Nagel from Oppenheimer. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Thanks as always for all the details. Um, so I have a, a couple questions here. I, I know the first one's gonna be a follow-up. Just with regard to that, uh, you know, the guidance, the, the top line guidance you've given here for, for Q1, you know, should we should we interpret that to mean that you know if you're down mid single digits, that the the the, the backdrop for Wayfair has actually gotten more difficult here? And I recognize there's a lot of seasonality and such, but if, as we've gone from Q3, Q4, and then into Q1, has the has the backdrop actually gotten more 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 difficult? Then my follow-up question, unrelated, um, Kate, all, thanks for all the details there on, with respect to the, you know, the balance sheet. I guess maybe if you could help us understand better, you know, you, 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 you obviously repositioned the business extraordinarily well. You have a better year and a better cash position, cash flow position, but how should we think about the timing of some of these actions to, to, to on the balance sheet? Okay, great, great. Brian. Uh, why don't I, um, on your first part of your question, um, where you talk about, um, you know, is the backdrop getting more difficult? I think what you're referring to there is, you know, has the macroeconomic climate gotten tougher? I think that's kind of where you're going with that. And we would say yes. You know, we would say that, you know, the the macroeconomic climate has gotten tougher. I think um, that, you know, is what we just read comments from a lot of other retailers that have made public comments. That's what I think you're hearing broadly. You know, we've seen that in the credit card data. And, uh, you know, I, I was at uh, the, the Vegas furniture market, which I referenced earlier, and, you know, the, January was particularly tough. Now, there was some bad weather in there that was temporal. So, we, you know, things have gotten a little better uh, since. But the market is softer than you would have, um, you know, than you would have thought uh, it, it would be if it was kind of like sequentially just kind of modestly seasonality adjusted flat. Um, so I'd say the macro has gotten tougher, but I will also point on the macro the depth of the macro drawdown now is quite significant. So it's kind of like, again, someone, I forget whose note it was, but they, they referred to like demand bouncing along the bottom. And I'd say that's kind of like generally what we would think it roughly is, but you can't predict the macro. So that's why we focus more on the internal execution on the recipe. Um, we focus on, you know, the, the internal drivers that we know will let us take share, that will let us outcompete others and do well, regardless of what the, the, the you know the, the market uh, the market size is. And we've you know just in this quarter you know the, to date, so not the fourth quarter but the first quarter, you know we, we, our market share is you know has continued to climb. So we, we you know we're still hitting all time highs. We're continuing meaning we're climbing. You know we're hitting new all time highs. Yeah, so um, thank you for the question on, on capital structure. You know, it, as you pointed out, we've made significant changes in the profitability and the free cash flow nature of the business. And that broadly gives us optionality around capital structure. So as I said in the prepared remarks, you know, one of those options actually is to pay the 2025s off in cash. Um, and, you know, we think that is a good and viable option. That said, we're very focused on what is most economically efficient for our shareholders and best for the business, and we intend to be prudent and thoughtful. And so we continue to vet a wide range of options from cash payment to refinancing to a combination. With regards to your question on timing, you know, it's worth noting that each quarter that our financial profile continues to improve and our free cash flow generation improves, obviously the cost of capital for us continues to come down. Um, and so there is some benefit there to the timing as well. Very helpful. I appreciate it. Thank you. 
Your next question comes from a line of Anna Andreva from Needham. Your line is open. Anna Andreva, your line is open. Oh, apologies. Uh, good morning, guys. Thanks so much. Good morning. Uh, can you talk about if you're seeing anything different uh, with demand across various household incomes? Is it the lower income consumer that's more pressured so far in 1Q? Uh, and also curious on performance of other high margin brands in a portfolio outside of uh, core Wayfair banner. Uh, how did the specialty retail and the Wayfair professional perform? Uh, that's uh, either in the fourth quarter or so far uh, quarter to date. Thank you so much. Uh, th thanks, thanks, Sam. So, um, a few thoughts on that. So, first, you know, you do see demand get increasingly pressured as you move down the income levels. Um, so, you know, obviously you would expect that, but we see that in our data, and we also see that in the uh, macro uh, data we get from, uh, particularly some of the banks, the credit card companies. So, I'd say that trend is pretty clean and and, and pretty obvious. Um, and so, you know, I think there's nothing surprising to that though. Um, then, in terms of our brands, when you talk about kind of our brands, especially brands which kind of play uh, kind of above mass, and then the luxury platform Paragold, which plays above that, um, you're, you're seeing that um, those uh, higher higher end ones are doing quite well. And you know, Paragold, I mean, it, the luxury market is much less competitive, but it's it's growing at very significant rates. And you know, part of that is you know it, it's it's smaller than Wayfair, but we have small market share everywhere. It's just. Um, you know, that's a relatively young brand for us. It's executing very well. And, and as, as we mentioned a minute ago, that higher-end market is less pressured. So it's a, it's a uh, much better place. But it's growing, you know, significant growth rates. Your next question comes from a line of Colin Sebastian from Baird. Your line is open. Uh, thanks and good morning. I appreciate um, the opportunity. Uh, maybe one quick follow-up on, on the last question um, around customer segmentation. I know there's a lot of curiosity around uh, emerging competition in e-commerce um, from Asia, um, including expansion of the home category. If that's something that you foresee impacting prices or, or customer acquisition costs, or is that more likely limited to, to the lower-end um, consumer segment? And, and then maybe secondly, um, in the shareholder letter, I, I, I was intrigued by some of the comments on logistics around additional services that, that, you, that you're building on top of that infrastructure. And, and just curious for, for maybe a little more color on, is that adding new revenue opportunity or is that more about creating additional efficiency? Obviously, you know, in terms of competitive differentiation, um, there's some interesting stuff happening there. Thank you. Uh, th thanks, uh, Colin. So, first on your first part of your question around uh, the customer segmentation, and uh, I think basically your question is sort of like the kind of growth of Timu and Shein and TikTok Shop. And so, what what uh, role do you see them playing from a competitive standpoint for us? What I would say is what we've really seen is that where they compete is at the very low end of the market, both low end kind of quality wise and uh, kind of ticket size. And so, um, that's where their volume is. That's what they're known for kind of with customers for. Um, I think that's where you see, you know, Amazon obviously lowered their take rate at the low end of certain categories, I think, because it's kind of out of a holiday uh, competition there with those folks were. And I think some of the other folks who sell kind of smaller odds and ends kind of, um, you know, referencing, we have not seen them 
uh, really be a competitor in, you know, we obviously we co-focus on home. Many people have a home business. The question is what do they really sell in home? What are the subcategories and what tranches of them, you know, that do they really play in? And that's where you start seeing, you know, the, the Venn diagram overlaps end up not being necessarily very large in certain places, and they are much larger in other places. So um, we have not seen these folks be competitors. Also, some of them are very large advertising spenders, and we have not seen them uh, really be a player in when we look at the share and who our competitive set is in certain of the lower funnel advertising, things like uh, Google PLAs and Google Search or some of these things that are highly targeted and high intent. We don't see them being players there. And as you go upper funnel, things like display or things like television, these are vast markets where no one competitor or two competitors move that market, and you're not necessarily competing with named specific competitors that those markets are more broad. So. We haven't seen them be competitors. Um, now, we obviously watch all our competitors and what they're doing and how, how, how things are evolving, but we feel very good about what we've built for differentiation in home around the shopability, around the delivery and logistics, around a set of things that, um, frankly, or, you know, unless you focus on, on these bigger, bulkier items and the home goods in particular that are prone to damage, I don't think you can necessarily, um, you know, tackle those things very easily. So we feel very good about that. Um, and then to touch on the second part of your question on logistics, you know, and you said, hey, um, you, you know, in the shareholder letter, I talked about logistics for a little bit, and you talked about, you know, do, do these create revenue opportunities or do these create cost efficiencies? Well, the answer is they can create both. And, uh, you know, just one example I'll highlight, um, which is kind of a service offering that makes a lot of sense for us to provide, doesn't make a lot of sense if you don't focus on, like, our categories very deeply, would be something that's relatively new but that we're um, that we're, we've been working on and um, we'll start to roll out, which is consolidated delivery. So consolidated delivery, it allows you, you know, whether you're moving houses or you're doing a renovation or you're an interior designer doing a project for a client, or, you know, if you want all the items for your bathroom remodel for your contractor to show up uh, at a given day or you're helping your son move into an apartment, you can basically pick a order of a set of large and small items, pick a date in the future that you want them all to be delivered, and they can then be delivered at the same time on that date in the future. So from a customer standpoint, you can see how in certain use cases that's incredibly uh, convenient. It would be very helpful for the customer for that to happen. Um, and so you can imagine then the customer would be inclined to buy more of those items for that use case or that project from you because it's going to be easier. They'll all come together at the same time. And so maybe you wouldn't have bought that coffee maker from us, but if it's going to be one of the many items you want delivered at the same time, you might as well just buy it from us instead of buying it somewhere else, even though it's more of a, say, a commodity item or what have you. Um, so you can see that growing revenue. But then from a cost efficiency standpoint, as you can imagine, delivering things one at a time is less efficient than delivering a lot of things all at once. And so when you have a logistics network where we have fulfillment centers, we're picking up from suppliers, we have over-the-road transportation moving goods down the chain towards where they're going to be delivered from, we have these delivery terminals. Given that we have that infrastructure, you can then with, uh, with software, you know, which you have to build, which is, you know, complicated, but as you have that, you can actually lower your cost of delivery while improving the customer experience and growing revenue. So you get these combination effects. Uh, I picked one that happens to just be an easier one to explain, but there's a lot of other benefits and the various things we're doing. So we, we think the logistics runway is, is a real one. It's significant, and it still has a lot of, a lot of room for us to, to build a kind of good customer experiences there. Great. Thanks, Neeraj. Your next question comes from a line of Christopher Horvers from J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Thanks. Good morning, everybody. So as you think about a couple questions. So first, as you think about the flat scenario in 600 billion plus of EBITDA, can you help us think about 
you know, how that plays out down the P&L. Would you expect, you know, gross margin to expand in that scenario? If you go back to the analyst day, a lot of the long-term margin potential is in the gross margin line, or is it simply, you know, more weighted to the, the, the lower cost on the SOTG and A line? Thanks. Yeah. Hey, Chris. Good morning, it's Kate. I'll, I'll start with that. Um, so it, it really is more of the cost takeout that we took out in January and seeing that flow through. So I would think about gross margin, you know, staying in that 30 to 31% range, which is where we've guided to and obviously where we averaged for 23, where you're going to see the cost savings from January hit on the P&L, though, is actually in two places. One is on the customer service and merchant fees. We said of the $280 million total takeout, and again, that was net, so that included the hiring back. But of the $280 million total takeout, $150 million um, would hit, um, you know, down to the adjusted EBITDA line. Of that, $25 million was in that customer service emergency line. And so, you know, it, it, when I guided, I said that will come in a little bit more going forward. And then $125 million of that was on that SOTG&A line. You actually saw that in the guide. You know, if you take the Q4 SOTG&A number and the midpoint of the guide, you'll see that $125 million savings there. So really where you see the pickups are on customer service and merchant fees on SOTG&A, gross margin AC&R stay about where they average in 23 for that hypothetical, you know, $600 million on a flat revenue scenario. And is that because the, the long-term gross margin initiatives are more sales dependent, you know, versus, you know, an opportunity to con continue to take cost out? And as just as a quick second follow-up, the, you know, worst case plus 50% EBITDA uh, in 24, is that, does that assume that the current trend of the business that down mid-single digit uh, sticks to the rest of the year? Thank you. So let me um, answer the first part of your question first on the gross margin savings. So first, we remain very confident in the gross margin opportunities. Obviously, we've talked about, you know, um, you know, getting in our analyst day, we've talked about getting to 35 plus on gross margin. That, of course, remains. What we were trying to provide in that $600 million is the framework on that flat revenue scenario, just from the cost savings for this year, how you can see that flow through. We continue to see ongoing operating efficiency in that gross margin line, um, and we always always make the trade-off of, you know, do we pass that through to the customer or do we pocket that? And as we've spoken about in the past, that's an ongoing discussion around what is going to be optimal on a multi-quarter basis, and you obviously saw us reinvest some of that in the fourth quarter of this year. Um, so ongoing opportunity there, nothing has changed in our longer-term plan, and we expect to see that to con continue to pan out. On your question around the 50% um, adjusted EBITDA growth, I would think about that as a floor that we're trying to set. So the top-line scenario, we're obviously not guiding to the top line, but we wanted to help folks see the opportunity that we have on adjusted EBITDA, somewhat irrespective of the macro conditions, based on all these cost efforts and the levers that we have at our disposal. You and I actually just talked about two of them. So one would be, you know, the hiring and the SOTG&A. That includes some hiring back throughout the year that can be metered as necessary depending on the macro. And the other one on that gross margin line, we, of course, always have ongoing operating and cost efficiency there that we're pushing on, and we can choose to pass that through or pocket that. And that gives us some optionality and is why uh, we feel comfortable saying that we can have that substantial adjusted EBITDA growth irrespective of where the top line goes. Thanks very much.
Your next question comes from a line of Stephen Forbes from Guggenheim Securities. Your line is open. Good morning. Neeraj, I wanted to maybe expand on your curation comments from the letter, especially as we think about you know, sort of how the assortment right, or the vendor base can change or house brand penetration can change over the coming years. And then maybe if you can sort of weave in how the curation strategy could or, or does sort of uh, marry together with like any, any mitigation uh, strategy around tariffs. Oh, great, Steve. So, um, so what I would say is the curation strategy, which is about really, you know, building up the, you know, talk about the house brands and especially retail brands, but building up the selection in those with great items that we know customers will be thrilled with once they open the item and get it in their house and set it up, um, and putting that kind of stamp of approval on it. Obviously, making sure it's very well priced. The logistics on it are optimized. Um, we think we can keep, you know, building that up and adding that value to that curation. So we think what we've done so far is just the beginning of that. Now, what what I would say is obviously we then are very thoughtful about which suppliers we're we're, we're working with for those items. Like, where are we picking these items from? So we're picking these from items who we know uh, from suppliers that we know are reliable and ones that we can work with well and who we have a tight relationship with. Um, obviously, that then, you know, we can take many things into account, and obviously, like, where items are produced, you know, the tariff um, uh, question really is about a source of production, you know, the category I would point to that's had a lot of uh, tariff complexity over the last couple of years is mattresses. And, you know, there has been multiple rounds where mattress uh, sort of different countries have been assigned different uh, kind of penalties associated with tariffs or which really inhibited production in different places, and we've obviously been very cognizant of making sure that we have of production that lets us have the quality items we want at the prices that make sense and making sure that we maintain availability, that we're not out of stock and chasing it. So that's the type of thing that we think about as we're, as we're building our assortment in mattresses. Our assortment is under brands like Nora or Wayfair Sleep. Um, and then obviously the, the, we work with branded uh, folks as well. So, um, so I, hopefully that answers your question in terms of how we think about it and uh, the, kind of the context of geographic location and supplier selection is part of how we think about it. Thank you. And maybe just a quick follow-up for you, Kate. Um, the comments around sort of your ability to pull back on maybe the reinvestment plans for the back half, any way to help us contextualize the spread between gross and net? Should we look at the first quarter SOTGA guidance compared to the fourth quarter and assume that's like two-thirds of the benefit or any help on sort of just framing where, where the second quarter uh, as a TGA number sort of troughs. Yeah, so I, I guess I would help you with this. The um, on the SOTGA, if you pick the midpoint of that guide for Q1 and compare that to the where the fourth quarter landed, you see the 125 million of net savings show up there, right? And so within that first quarter, you obviously had a month of you know comp for folks that exited in that quarter. And that's, you know, sort of offsetting what we said would be some of the hiring backs. So you actually end up at that net number in the first quarter, and that should stay, you know, based on the hiring plan, that should stay relatively constant throughout the year. Now, as I said, sure, it's a lever for us if we had to pull, um, and you could see us pull that lever dependent on the macro. But it's important to note that, you know, we think these hires make sense. It's part of rebuilding the pyramid structure that we think is appropriate for the ongoing growth and execution of the business. 
um, yours referenced, you know, some of the campus hires and how those flow in and, and the benefit there. But generally, the Q1 uh, guide, you know, think about that as a sort of good point on SOTG&A throughout the year based on the current hiring plan. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Oli Wintermantle from Evercore ISI. Your line is open. Uh, yeah, hi guys. Um, I had a question, uh, Neeraj, you mentioned um, um, three things that you're excited about in 2024. One was the new campaign in March and then the loyalty program. Um, maybe you, uh, if, you, if you could spend a couple minutes on, on explaining what, what that entails. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, so, uh, so yeah, and the, I mentioned three things I was excited about. Um, one was the launch of the first Wayfair retail store, in, in, which opens in May, just north of Chicago in Wilmette. Um, another one was um, the the, uh, the new marketing campaign for Wayfair, which debuts in, in mid-March. So that that's a campaign that, uh, you, obviously, the most notable place you'll see it on is in television, but it really carried through all the different channels. Um, we're really excited about it. You'll see it very shortly. But with, the whole goal is to continue to build brand loyalty for Wayfair and tell the story to make sure customers really understand the breadth and depth of what we offer and why Wayfair should be the place to go to for all things home. And so we, we think that this campaign can further that depth of understanding and continue to kind of build a real understanding and, and ultimately preference for what we offer. Um, and the third one, which you're asking about, is the Tender Neutral Loyalty Program. And the Tender Neutral Loyalty Program, the way to think about it, today what we have for a loyalty program um, all the benefits of the loyalty program are associated with having a Wayfair credit card. So you have to get a Wayfair credit card, either the MasterCard that's co-branded with Citibank or there's the Wayfair-specific store-based credit card. And then there's different rewards benefits that are associated with that. But we don't have a broad-based loyalty program that works regardless of how you choose to pay. And we think that there's a real opportunity for that, um, which could also help us, you know, not just provide customers with enhanced benefits, but um, help make us the more top-of-mind place for all things home. It creates significant incremental revenue um, and, and drives significant profits. So we're going to launch that later this year. Um, you know, we've internally uh, kind of figured out the framework of what that is, but we need to build the technology to support it and the marketing plans for it and to roll it out. Um, so that's coming. But I, the reason I refer to it is we know that customers love us um, and we think, A, there's an opportunity to deepen their understanding of what we do. That's where the marketing campaign comes in. And, and we also think there's a lot of things we can do to just cause them to come to us far more often. And that, that's where the Tender Neutral Loyalty Program plays a big role. Got it. Thanks very much. Good luck. Thank you. Your final question comes from a line of Curtis Nagel from Bank of America. Your line is open. Good morning. Thanks for taking the question. Um, Kate, just... Um, if you go back to, to 1Q and, and the guidance, just curious if you go through just kind of the range of outcomes within, you know, the mid-single, I'm sorry, the low-single-digit uh, EBITDA, uh, and how much is that, is, you know, based on the ranging of the gross margin, you know, how much of that is, is revenue, right? I think anticipation is it continues into low-single, so mid-single, so if that got better, you know, what would that mean? But just walking through kind of the, the most important or the biggest um, you know, things that could, could, you know, drive variability, you know, within that low single would be uh, really helpful. Uh, yeah, so, you know, Kurt, obviously we're somewhat unique about the first quarter. We're guiding, you know, somewhat seven weeks into the quarter. We said the trend on revenue um, is quarter to date, that negative mid-singles. Um, obviously, if trend on revenue improves, certainly you'd see more flow through, right? 
Um, and, you know, that could be a variability on the bottom line. But generally speaking, that's what we've seen so far, quarter to date. Um, we've maintained that 30 to 31 guidance range on, on gross margin. You've seen that hit us hit that very consistently over the last several quarters. Um, and then obviously on the ACNR and the ad spend, that being another line that you've seen us, you know, bring that into that 11 and a half, 12 and a half very consistently over the last several quarters. Those being two of the, you know, more somewhat variable pieces there. Um, certainly, you know, if revenue were to accelerate from here, would you see more flow through to that, uh, you know, low single digits number? Absolutely. But I, again, point you to the fact that we're in the third week of February, we're into the quarter, and we see, um, you know, negative mid-singles at this current time. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. And then, um, yeah, just a quick follow-up on the AOV. Um, it's, it's, it sounds like it was um, impacted and, and you know, certainly more than you expected from, I think you said mix, but could we just dig a little bit more into what, you know, change, could have such a radical change? Was it, you know, anything you did or, um, you know, anything from, I guess, a customer uh, perspective? Yeah, so I think um, the thing about AOV, I think what I was trying to describe is actually the real phenomenon AOV over the last year and a half has actually been that all the ocean freight inflation then reversed and have come back out. And as that's come back out, you've seen AOV drop. That's been the primary driver of AOV. But then as you start anniversarying where it drops, so in other words, it, it started dropping in the fourth quarter of 22, the subsequent drop to the following year is not going to be as high because a lot of the drop had already happened, right? And so we're just in the latter stages of anniversarying that deflation coming out. So over the next couple of quarters, that all that deflation will come out a year ago, and so then AOV will not really be moving for that reason anymore. And I, what I was trying to say is that AOV can move for many reasons, right? It can move for mix of our brands. It can move for category mix. It can move for mix due to seasonality. And those are primarily the things that move AOV. It's just that well, the phenomenon over the last year where it's come down a lot is due to the deflation, and we're nearing the end of that. And so you should expect AOV to not necessarily drop as much because we're now finishing the anniversary of, of, of that AOV. So that, that, that was more just um, uh, kind of the question I was trying to answer um, earlier. Okay, got it. Thanks very much. Thanks. And so I just want to thank everybody uh, for joining on the call. Um, one, one more plug, just to encourage you to read our shareholder letter, which is um, on our investor relations website, which um, we think you'll enjoy. And um, obviously, we think we're poised for really uh, great things, both in the tough macro while we can take share, and then as things recover, obviously, significant EBITDA gains to come this year, regardless of the environment. And um, 